the number one way that hacks and security breaches and ransoms start is with compromised credentials, a compromised password. That's how it starts. The more passwords we have, the more careless we are with how we store them and save them. The more we use our pets' names as the basis of our passwords, the more we do sharing of passwords across family members or across our banking and our streaming and our social accounts, the more likely we are to get hacked. Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. That was Dennis O'Shea, our guest expert on today's episode of Looking Forward. Wow, did you know how easy it is for cyber criminals to get into our accounts because of our passwords? I knew having lots of passwords wasn't a great thing, but honestly, I had no idea how vulnerable this makes us. And if we're part of an organization, how vulnerable it makes our companies too. And no wonder Dennis mentions pets in the same sentence as passwords. In fact, Dennis says that 15% of the global population uses some derivative of a pet's name for their password. That's crazy because, as you'll hear, it increases our vulnerability to being hacked. Now, lest you think this episode of Looking Forward is going to bring it down, don't worry. This is just part one of our two-part series with Dennis O'Shea. Think of part one as a wake-up call to remind you about how important our computer and mobile phone security hygiene is, and how important it is to our businesses no matter where in the world we live. In part two, which will air next week, Dennis will peer into the future and shed light on the things looking forward is most noted for. Opportunities. In this case, opportunities related to computer and phone security, the ever-expanding world of mobile workers, and more. Now let me tell you just a little bit about Dennis O'Shea. He founded the company Mobile Mentor in New Zealand in 2004. Since then, Mobile Mentor has helped millions of people unlock the full potential of their technology. In 2017, Dennis moved to Nashville, Tennessee to launch the company's United States business with a focus on securing the mobile workforce in industries such as healthcare, education, finance, and government services. Mobile Mentor, you should know, was named Microsoft's 2021 Global Partner of the Year for Modern Endpoint Management, primarily for their work helping a live hospice safely treat patients during COVID. You'll find more about Mobile Mentor and Dennis by visiting the podcast page at www.jeff-ostroff.com. Hi, Dennis. Welcome to Looking Forward. Thanks, Jeff. I'm delighted to be on your podcast. Well, I'm excited to have you because you're going to be speaking about a topic that affects so many people who are working and the employers who employ them and freelancers, and it has dramatic ramifications. And you're really at the leading edge of this stuff. So I have to ask you at the outset, Dennis, There's no doubt that you're an expert on the use of technology to improve the employee and employer experience. 
When did you first realize that you had an interest in and an aptitude for technology? Oh my God. I would have been just a little kid playing with Lego and Meccano and building things and trying to figure out how things worked. And I realized I had, I guess, a bit of an aptitude for technology. And so I went ahead and I studied technology and I got a couple of degrees, but I quickly realized that technology wasn't for me once I really got into it and that I was actually more interested in people and how people use technology. Outcomes people derive from technology than going deeper into the technology itself. So I'm not your classic geek or technology nerd. (laughs) I got bored with the technology at a certain point and I became really fascinated with how people actually use technology and how they, they derive benefits from. That's a really fascinating angle because you're right. The stereotypical technology person is thought of as a geek. They're fine just working with their laptop or whatever, and they don't necessarily need to communicate with a lot of people or want to communicate with a lot of people. And you are more people-oriented, and so you were able to marry those two together. If you could just say a word or two about your New Zealand background, is that where your education was from in New Zealand? No, all my education was in Europe. So I'm I'm a bit of a global citizen. I grew up in Ireland. I did my bachelor's degree there. Then I Ah. moved to Finland, did my master's in Finland. And then then I moved to New Zealand, spent a bunch of years there, then moved again to Switzerland, did my MBA in Switzerland, then back to New Zealand for a while. And now I'm in the United States. So I'm a bit of a global citizen and with a global accent that many people struggle to figure out. But it's because (laughs) I've lived in seven different countries around the world. (laughs) Well, you know, this is something else that makes you a perfect guest on Looking Forward because we're global. We focus on global and you have been a global traveler. So (laughs) that's exciting to hear. Your company, Mobile Mentor, was founded way back before our workforces became so mobile. Why did you launch Mobile Mentor back in 2004? What motivated you? What were you seeing? back then with this mobile mentor that maybe a lot of other people weren't seeing at that time? Well, I guess like many founders, my story started with a failure. I was working for Nokia. I was in a number of different global positions with them. And the last role I had with them, I was running Nokia's operations in Switzerland. And I failed to close a very important sale because my customer said, why would we buy this technology you're trying to sell us when we're when our customers are not using the technology you sold us last year? Ooh. And it was like a gut punch. And I had no recovery. I had nothing to go back with. And I lost the sale. And I really took that as, I guess, a pivot point in my career, realizing that it's not just about the technology. It's what people do with it and people and how they derive benefits from. And from there, I really got curious around What do we actually need to do to enable people to get more value, in particular from cellular technology? I've been involved in providing technology to mobile workers forever. And we were thinking back in those days, and that was in 2003, I think, we were rolling out a 3G network to people in Europe who were buying their first smartphones and trying to convince them to use their smartphones for more than voice and text messages. Back in the day before we had proper internet and, and all the apps we have today. And, and I realized that we had not got it right. Most people were going out and spending a lot of money on a smartphone, which wasn't that smart. And they were not doing anything very smart with it. They were just making phone calls and sending text messages. 
So the burning question in my mind was, how do we get people to do more with this technology? And the question burned me so much, I decided to walk away from a fabulous 15-year career at Nokia. Wow. And, and I founded Mobile Mentor to address that problem. Wow, that's a fascinating beginning. And what I really like about it is what you said at the outset of it, Dennis, which is it is often a failure that might prompt us into doing something where we become successful. And you have become successful. And it was that failure and that gut punch that did it. The gut punch in Switzerland. (laughs) Sounds like the title of a movie, but we'll we'll move on. (laughs) As you know, Dennis, you're on Looking Forward. We like to look into the future. But before we get to that, we first like to take a look backwards a bit. And I'm wondering if you would share with our listeners a little bit about how employees' use of technology in the workplace has evolved over, say, the past few decades. You've been involved, certainly, in that period of time. And I'm thinking in terms of the devices that they've been given, the training on the devices, the increase in the number of employees who use those devices. And I'll add to that, when I was working in my first career, I can remember the first device like that I got. It was a BlackBerry. And it came with no training whatsoever. Well, it's a really good point you raised because nowadays we take so much for granted. You know, all around the world, people are using technology that just works today. If I wind the clock back to 2004, it was not that easy. It really, really was a lot of hard work to get a smartphone working. And if I think back to what you needed to do in 2004 when we started, our goal, by the way, was to try and set up one person at a time to be really productive with their new smartphone. So let's say if you bought a new BlackBerry or a Nokia or a Sony Ericsson or a Motorola back in the day, we would come out and spend one hour with you and help you get everything working. Get your email set up, get your browsing set up, get your music on that device, sync all your contacts, get your calendar synchronization working. And we say that now, we think, not a big deal, right? It just works today. But 17 or 18 years ago, that was a mission. Wow. And to do it, you needed to have this funky little cable you would plug into your phone and then into your laptop and synchronize them with some special software. And there were a whole bunch of other things you needed to do. You needed to know some very specific server addresses to get your outbound email working and a different server address for your inbound email. Mm. And most lay people didn't know these crazy addresses. And nobody wanted to read the manual because the font was tiny and it came in seven different languages and the little book didn't stay open. And so it was just all a pain. It was a real pain. And we solved that pain with this one-on-one service we were providing. But of course, smartphones, then later, kind of, everyone got good at using smartphones. And then we got tablets. And then laptops became mobile devices. And so we've seen people go from having maybe one mobile device to having maybe three mobile devices now. And they're all different. We need to be productive on all of them. And we need them all to be secure. And that's the key thing. And 17 year, or 18 years ago, security was not something we thought too much about. It was just not a big deal. Now it's a very big deal. And we're going to get so, into that big time. Yeah. I want to ask you a follow-up question to what you said, Dennis. Back in 2004 and the few years thereafter, after you launched Mobile Mentor, who was paying for this kind of training you were talking about? Because as I said, 
I was working at that point for the VA healthcare system. And, you know, you get the BlackBerry as an executive, but you were kind of like on your own to sort of figure out what do I do? And I'm sure I never used it to its near fullest capacity. So were companies paying you or were these small business people? Who was paying you for this? The business model was that we formed partnerships with some of the global carriers, the global mobile phone operators. Ah. So Vodafone was our first partner and they were fabulous. And then Telecom Italia, they sponsored us in Brazil. And we had China Unicom. We had Telstra in Australia. And we also had partnerships with some of the global smartphone manufacturers like uh, Sony Ericsson, Nokia, BlackBerry themselves, later on with Apple. And so the manufacturers and the mobile networks had a vested interest in seeing their customers use their technology. Because the more people use their smartphone, the more they're getting value from it. They're consuming the network and, and paying for services. So they were essentially our business partners and they enabled us then to provide our service to their customers who were buying a smartphone, usually on a postpaid data plan. Makes perfect sense. As you know, we have many listeners, Dennis, who don't live in the United States. I alluded to the fact that it is a global-oriented podcast. You've already touched upon some global aspects, not only in where you've lived, but the companies that you were working with. Are there any differences between how things have evolved over the last couple or three decades in the United States versus the rest of the world? In terms of employees' use of these devices, the training they get, how many devices they have, who's paying for the training, all this stuff. I haven't really seen any form of training on smartphones or any technology in recent years. I think society Ah. has now kind of learned to use the technology without a lot of assistance. Where I have seen notable changes are in the adoption of other technology. So if I think about the adoption of cloud technologies, we know for a fact now, small digitally enabled and tech savvy countries like Estonia and Finland and New Zealand really highly adopted on cloud technology. They're quite advanced. Estonia is probably the most tech-savvy and digitally advanced nation on the planet right now. I think New Zealand usually ranks number two or three, and Singapore is right up there in the top three as well, I believe. So these are countries that are very deliberately said, we're going to digitize all our citizen services and all our banks and all our education and, and all our healthcare and everything we do. And they've been very deliberate about it, and they've been very focused on that. I live right now in the United States, as you know, and and this is a fascinating country with with so many paradoxes and and dilemmas. And one of them is around technology. So much tech innovation comes out of the United States. It's unbelievable how much innovation happens in this country. And yet the only country in my global career where I've ever been asked to use a checkbook or or sign things on paper or use a fax machine is the United States. (laughs) Like I literally had a new customer recently who asked me to print something out and take a photocopy of a checkbook and send the information by fax so that they could pay us. And I had to say, I'm sorry, we don't own a printer. We're a paperless company. We don't have a checkbook because everything is digital and paid online. And I haven't seen a fax machine for about 15 years. (laughs) What would you like us to do? (laughs) I love that. Couple of comments. One is I remember way back in my career, Dennis, I worked in the Medicare program And I remember things started being sent over fax machines and it was like a new planet had been discovered. (laughs) That's how exciting it was. 
The second thing I want to say to echo your point is I had Tavi Kotka on the podcast and he was, and probably still is, one of the pioneers in Estonia on digital technology and blockchain Ah. and all that stuff. So I absolutely agree with you as far as Estonia goes. They are right up there at the top when it comes to embracing this stuff. Now, I don't have to tell you about how dramatically COVID-19 has affected the United States and most parts of the world. I'm wondering if you could give us your perspectives and maybe a few examples, Dennis, on what impact COVID has had on employees' use of technology. And this is maybe even more important, the implications in terms of the impact on employees and employers. It's been really profound. And the way I like to think about it is for about the last 20 years before the pandemic, not a lot changed in the way people work. People went to work, they went by train or bus or ferry or car, and they went into work and they logged into a machine that was usually provided to them by their employer and owned by their employer. And when they finished their work, they logged out and they went home. And work was work and home was home. And then we had five seismic shifts in the way people work in the last two years. First, everybody was told, go home and stay at home for a period of time and work remotely and we'll figure it out. And around the same time, there was a 500% increase in cybercrime, which was really tragic. And the cyber criminals, as we now know, went after our schools, our cities, our hospitals, our government departments, the, the very part of society that was helping us all deal with the pandemic and helping keep us safe and educated and all that. And then the next thing that happened was the global chip shortage had a huge impact because we could no longer get a computer. And for the first time in history, employers had to basically tell their employees to use their personal laptops and personal computers. So we've seen BYO smartphones for a long time, bring your own smartphone. Yes, That's quite a common thing in many countries. We'd never before seen BYO laptop. Mm. So that became a thing during the pandemic. And then... When we thought we were coming out of the pandemic at the end of 2020, employers started hiring new people again, in some cases quite quickly, and hiring remote workers and onboarding them remotely. So now you've got people being hired into companies. The employer has never met that employee. The employee is using a personal device, maybe a personal laptop. They're on on an internet connection from their home. Cybercrime is going crazy. Everyone's under attack. And employers are taking big risks with this new configuration of people working from home on a domestic consumer-grade Wi-Fi connection on, on a domestic device, and their company data is out there in all these home offices. And then the, the fifth, what I consider to be a seismic shift, was how we saw like a big power shift. The balance of power shifted from employers to employees in 2021. When employees realized, I can work anywhere. I can go to Costa Rica, I can go to New Zealand, I can be in Italy, I can work anywhere and it doesn't matter. I can be a global worker and employees decided to take some power into their hands and choose to resign because the grass was greener somewhere else. That was a big power shift from the employer to the employee and forced a big rethink about how do we retain our best people and how do we hire new people who are looking for this kind of flexibility and how do we keep ourselves safe whilst we enable people to work from a beach in Costa Rica or Italy or wherever um, and still get our work done and comply with our industry regulation. 
So to answer your question, massive shifts happened in two short years compared to the previous 20. Boy, I love the way you laid that out, Dennis. I really do. I mean, you've, you've actually boiled it down to five, as you call them, seismic shifts. And you're absolutely right about all of them. And we're going to get a little bit more into that because I think people need to hear about this, whether they're an employee, employer, freelancer, whoever they are. And I want to turn in that regard to the 2022 endpoint ecosystem study that I know your company was involved with. I want to ask you about what are some of the greatest challenges you think we now are facing in the workplace based on some of the things you said and based on what employees are looking for. And I'm going to cite from the study the following. It says, employers are investing in cybersecurity initiatives. I'm quoting this, everybody. But as the workforce becomes increasingly distributed and autonomous, employers simply aren't keeping up. Companies are getting hacked, employees are resigning, and the battle for talent is intensifying. Now, can you elaborate on that and tell us a little bit more about why the study was done and what you learned? Well, we're really curious because if you think about it now, globally, you've got tens, if not hundreds of millions of people working in their home offices. So there's been this enormous shift and we wanted to understand what's actually going on in all those home offices. Like, I'd love to be able to sit behind you, Jeff, and see what you've got on your desk in front of you, what devices, how, how you've set yourself up, what's your configuration. And we're wondering, what compromises have people made to be able to work productively in their home office? And what risks are they taking? And what risks are their employers taking to enable people to work remotely? So we were just really curious. And we wanted to understand what's going on in all those millions of home offices around the place. So we did a study and we decided to go out and ask people. And we didn't ask the IT managers and companies because we think we know what they would tell us. We wanted to talk to the frontline worker. Sure. And we did it in four industries that are all highly regulated. So in theory, those industries should be very secure and information should be well protected and privacy should be a top consideration and those people should be very productive and well supported. And we got some surprises when we did the study and we analyzed the data. And you're probably wondering what those industries were. They were healthcare, education, government, and finance. So very heavily regulated industries that really should have their house in order when it comes to security. Tell us a little bit about what you learned from that study. And you already answered a question I had, which was why you chose to focus on those four industries. It's because they're highly regulated. And you would think because of that, that there'd be tighter security. But what came out of this that was eye-popping or at least uh, very important for both employers and employees to know? Well, I guess for employers to know, the first thing we realized was that security is not really a big consideration for employees. We know it is for the employer. We know that leadership teams and companies are thinking about and talking about security all the time. It's a board level consideration. It's a big deal because nobody wants to get hacked. Nobody wants to get ransomed. Nobody wants to have their customer details on the dark web. But it is happening every day. So we're very conscious of it. But for most employees out there trying to do their job in their home office, security is not a big consideration for them. And we know that because we ask them questions around, like, how often do you see a security policy at work? Or how often do you receive security awareness training? And the answers we got back tell us definitively that people 
either don't remember or don't see, or that it just doesn't register with them. They click to agree or they click to consent or they click next and they just jump their way through any training videos and it doesn't go in. And people are not absorbing the content and engaging with it in the way that their employers might like. So we know to a certain extent that if we keep banging on about security policies and security awareness training, it's going over people's heads. We're not getting through. People are fatigued with security messaging, just like most IT leaders are fatigued to read emails about cybersecurity. And we're fatigued when we hear about the latest cybersecurity breach, our vendors trying to sell us software to protect ourselves. Everyone's fatigued with the security topic, hmm. including the end user who almost has their eyes closed and their ears blocked when it comes to communication and messaging around security awareness and yes. security behaviors. So that was a bit of a shock. We didn't expect that, but that's what the data tell. So that was one. The other key thing we found was we have a massive problem in society worldwide today with passwords. Ah. And we call it password hygiene. And so it's not the fact that we all have too many passwords, because we do, right? We all have way too many passwords for our work lives, our personal lives, our banking, our streaming, all our cloud services. It just never ends and they're doing our heads in. But the real problem we've discovered is what people are doing and how they're saving and storing their passwords. That's a real problem. And so we found in some industries, about 30% of people write their work passwords in a personal journal, which is not cool. And about another 25% of people save their work passwords on a notes app on their phone. Mm. And in many cases, it's a personal phone. Mm. And then some people just save their work passwords on an Excel sheet or a Word document. And very few people actually use a proper password management tool, which is, of course, what we should be using as we kind of go on this journey towards a passwordless future. We need to think seriously about what our employees and what our organizations are doing to manage this cluster of passwords that everybody has to deal with on a daily basis. Because we now know for a fact that the number one way that hacks and security breaches and ransoms start is with compromised credentials, a compromised password. That's how it starts. The more passwords we have, the more careless we are with how we store them and save them. The more we use our pets' names as the basis of our passwords, the more we do sharing of passwords across family members or across our banking and our streaming and our social accounts, the more likely we are to get hacked. And we've got to a point where it's so bad now that in many cases, the cyber criminals don't need to break into your environment, break into your network. They just log in with your weakest password. Wow. They can derive your weakest one because the research shows that 15% of people use their pet's name or a derivative of the pet's name. It might be the pet's name with a month or the phone number or date of birth or something silly like that. And that's 15% of the global population using some derivative of a pet's name. Yeah. And something like 6% of people still use the word password Uh as a password. (laughs) (laughs) And so for the hacking bots that are able to do millions of attempts per minute, they're able to figure out the easy passwords and get into our environments. They don't need to break in. 
Boy, Dennis, this is very disturbing, but it is looking forward. So I know there are going to be some positives coming up here soon. <laughs> but and when you said some of these things, I'm thinking, oh, no, because <laughs> you know, some of it is bouncing right back onto me. <laughs> oh, All of us, Jeff, you're not alone. I'll talk later about what we need to do to get ourselves out of this hole on passwords. Yeah. But it is a hole. We've dug ourselves a colossal hole. And if you think about it, passwords were a great invention back in 1961. So the combination of a username and a password to get into an account or a software program was a great invention in 61. Wow. What we found was 61. So it's 61-year-old technology. Wow. How many other 61-year-old technologies do you use in your life? (laughs) Not many, right? Not many. Where is that fax machine? (laughs) Before we start looking forward, because we need to get optimistic a little bit, I wanted to ask you, the study was done with employees in the United States and Australia. Yes. Do you think that the findings, if you had asked employees in most other countries, certainly not all countries are at the same speed with this stuff, but do you think the findings were representative of what we'd find if you were to poll people in those other countries, employees in those other countries? At a high level. I think there would be a lot of similarities where we found the differences was within the industries. We did the study at the end of 2021. It was November 21 we did it. And Australia and the US were like our two initial markets. We're going to do it every year in November for the next four years. And we'll expand the geography. So this will eventually become a global study. So we will add new geographies over time to get a larger catchment area, more representation from global citizens. And that will help broaden it out. But we really didn't see a lot of difference between Australians and Americans in their behaviors around password hygiene, security awareness, even shadow IT. And I can come back to that topic and and the employee experience and how people feel at work and how people perceive some of the trade-offs and compromises they have to make. We didn't see a lot of difference. When we drill into specific industries like the finance industry in Australia versus America, yes, we saw some government uh, restrictions. Yes, there were some, but not that material. Yeah. And the other thing I'm thinking of is going back to what you said earlier, Dennis, if these were the industries that were targeted because they are supposed to be the most regulated and theoretically, therefore, the most on top of things, what would it have been like if you went into other sectors? You, sounds like it would have been that much worse. Well, I'm really glad you said that because that's what we will do next time. We'll start to look at manufacturing, travel, tourism, retail, some of these other industries, because historically they were not as regulated and they were not big targets for cyber criminals. That has changed. We're seeing the manufacturing sector have a terrible time right now. Just awful what's happening in manufacturing. So many organizations. The question now is, have you been hacked yet? That's kind of the conversation between IT leaders and manufacturing organizations because they're all under attack. It's just brutal. Well, that's it for this episode of Looking Forward. I'd highly recommend you join us next week for part two of our two-part series with Dennis O'Shea. To hear other Looking Forward episodes, please visit www.jeff-ostroff.com. And while you're at it, Why not tell a family member or a friend about this episode or any of our nearly 100 other Looking Forward episodes? 
Any one of them will not only point you in the direction of a potential global opportunity, but it will also make for great conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F dot com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.